Praise God. You can be seated just for a moment. I would like to honor our chairman, Brother Booker. Appreciate him greatly. And the executive committee, all that is represented on the EC, the general counsel, all of the ministry that is here, and your families. I've enjoyed the preaching of the word. We've had some great, great messages of strength and encouragement and appreciate every message that we have heard. I want to say how much I appreciate my pastor, Bishop Leon Frost, Bishop and Sister Frost. I want to say I appreciate my wife on the way here. She asked me, are you okay? You don't seem too apprehensive. I said, well, I'm just going to get up there and I'm going to pretend that I'm at home and I'm just going to preach. And she said, are you sure you want to do that? (laughs) Uh, I appreciate her greatly. And I appreciate Greater Bakersfield's First Pentecostal Church. Great, great church uh, with a great heritage. And so honor all of those. Honor you of the house of God today. And uh, I'll be honest with you today. I have way too many notes. Way too many. And so I'm just going to preach until it seems like it's a good time to stop and then stop. I won't hold you too long uh, because there's no way I'm going to get through all of this. Brother Ray Brown preached his first message. And so on the way home, his mother was driving and he wanted to know how he did. And so he asked his mom, he said, Mom, how did I do? And she said, well, son, anyone can handle anything as long as it's not very long. I don't think that's what he was looking for, but that's what he got. And so if it's not very long, people are going to say, well, that was really good. It wasn't long. If, it was, if it's too long, then, and it wasn't good, it's going to be too long. So I've got a lot here <clears throat> this morning, but I will be cognizant of the time. Amen. God is good to us, isn't he? Praise God. Now, I came to preach this morning, but it's not just about preaching. We're here to worship him. So if you thought today you were just going to be able to sit back and listen, this is an engagement. We're involved in this thing together. And so we're going to link up. We're going to magnify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and recognize that his word is a power and a strength to us. It will not return void. And because of that, there is reason to be excited and thankful and worshipful because there is a strength and a power in it that is able to change. Amen. So let's stand together in the house of God. I want you to open your Bibles to a, I'm not going to say a familiar passage of scripture. I'm going to say a treasure of a passage. And this is going to be uh, interesting in its selection. You will recognize very quickly. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now I'm going to give a title. It's going to be a provocative title. I want you to hang in there with me because I'm going to be addressing the title through the message. And it's not enough just to say it. There has to be some feeling that is connected with the title. So I want you to understand that up front. My title is, There is more to the Bible than Acts 2.38. Now that's my title and that is what I'm going to launch out in today in the Word of God. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We ask that you would direct us, guide us, help us, strengthen us. We give to you thanks and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. This is a provocative title because it suggests one is so fully, solely focused on a particular scripture that that person or persons becomes blinded by the rest of the Bible. The one positive note in the argument is that at least we are talking about the scripture. For it seems nowadays my opinion or my feelings take precedent over what the word actually says. It's not my emotions and it's not my feelings that defined me or my situation. Neither does culture nor familial relationships. There's got to be something that is greater than what I feel that defines me. There's got to be something that is more powerful than my situation that defines me. It's got to be something more than what my family and my friends say about me that defines me. No, there's got to be something greater than that because my feelings will lead me astray. My friends will lead me astray and the culture that is around me will lead me astray. There's got to be something that anchors me that said, this is what defines you. This is what anchors you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. He was not talking about breaking up families. He was not talking about scattering. What he was talking about is there is something that is going to define you. That is greater than anything else in life. And what's going to define you is going to have to be something that is greater than your emotions, your feelings, your situation your environment, where you live, what you're going through, your dysfunction, and everything else associated with who you are. There's got to be something that is greater than that that will anchor you and will define you in the midst of storms and difficulties. And so what defines me is the engrafted word of God. What defines me is the scripture. I may not like it. I may have different opinions, but it's not my opinions that define me. It is the word of God that anchors me and defines me. We need a world that understands and recognizes. There's a lot of people casting out definitions, but there is still a word of God that is the greatest definition that could ever define your life. 
Hallelujah. Somebody clap your hands and thank the Lord that you have put yourself underneath the rubric of the scripture. Praise God. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I don't think you're hearing me today. There is a world that will say you're dysfunctional. Your daddy was an alcoholic. You're going to be an alcoholic. Your mom was a prostitute. You'll be a prostitute. And that's what's going to define you. I've come to preach today and tell you there is something that's greater than any of the world's definitions. There is an engrafted word that can be planted in your life that can define you. Not for now, but for an eternity. Praise God. Praise God. What defines me is the engrafted word for James in chapter 1 and verse 21 said, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. That comes from a Greek word that means to implant And not only does it mean implant, but innate. And so there's two major emphasis of definition. One, to implant like a bone marrow transplant. And I've had a bone marrow biopsy and it's not fun at all. It's a, it's an, a a intense internal type of pain. So there is an implanting of the word of God to fix or to set securely or deeply. And then secondly, innate, it exists in and belongs to the essential nature of something. When God plants his, when God plants his word in you and he engrafts his word in you, he fixes something in your life. But it's not only something that is fixed, it's innate that's attached to his character. It's attached to his essential being and nature of something. This is what I want to get in my heart. This is what I want engrafted in my spirit. This is what I want in my life because that is the definition and the anchoring that I need. So what defines me is the word of God. What defines me is the scripture. Now I know Andy Stanley in 2015 said we should not use the word Bible or scripture because it will not resonate with people sitting in congregations or buildings because they will not receive that. They will feel like it is a tool that is threatening. And so you should say stuff like Paul, a man by the name of Paul speaking to the church at Corinth or something like that so that they will understand and recognize. Uh, what, What I'm wondering is what happens when they find out that Paul's in the Bible and Corinth is in the scripture? It is the engrafted word. So tonight or today, I'm I'm just going to use the word scripture that defines me. The Bible defines me. And there's stuff in the Bible that people are in the Bible that have written stuff in the Bible. But the Bible as a whole is what defines who I am. Praise God. So. It is the scripture in which Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, which happens to be in the scripture, which is also another word for the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9, he said, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Here's the definitions. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor 
extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's some definitions. But then he says, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Thank God there is something that defined me. It recognized me for what I was, but it didn't leave me there. It said, this is what you are and this is who you are. But there is something greater that can come into your world, that can lift you out of miry clay, that can place you in a better standing and can define your life in its totality. Praise God, praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So the, the, the totality of the scripture has something to say to me. Not just an individual verse. I know that. I'm aware of that. And this message is to address that, that very question in, in, in an apologetic fashion. I know there's more in the Bible than Acts 2.38. I'm not creating a proverbial argumentative fallacy called a straw man. In which we build up a man and then we tear him down. This comes out of conversations. Conversations in my peer group about whether or not there's more in the Bible than Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. It comes from my experience in in going to a seminary and people saying, why such an insistence? Why do you have such an insistence on Acts chapter 2 and verse 38? Well, the reason I'm insisting is because you're not responding. And until you respond, I'm going to continue to insist. And don't give me, well, I just don't think God would do that. Listen, this word of God is the word of God. All right, we, we, we've got to follow what's here. Because if you start slicing, dicing, and saying, I don't think God would do this, define that that way or this way, then we're not going to have anything to base our conversation on. But if you get to the point where you can say, the word of God is the word of God, and what it says is what it says, then we can get somewhere and then also in the congregation (laughs) a gal that puts her hand on her hip and says well pastor there's just more to the bible than Acts 238 well sis have you followed? Yeah. What's there in Acts 2.38? Yeah. Because if you haven't followed it, then we really don't have much of a conversation that's going to proceed from this point. Because what you're really telling me is you're rejecting it. You don't really like it or want it. And you want to hear something about the eschatological vortex of the name that's above every name, looped up in under some kind of prophetic uh, something or other that's ensconced in mystery. You can't get there until you get here. You, you, <laughs> you got to have a foundation to move from. Because if you get all in that stuff, that, then that's okay, but you're not saved. And you need to get saved and grow before you can understand all of these mysteries in God. There's got to be a foundation that is laid. There's got to be some things that you laid down. Praise God, praise God. So I'm not, I'm not uh, creating a, a proverbial straw man here today. I'm, I'm just simply, in, in, in my best effort, 
Just being me trying to present to you an apologetic form, an answer to the question that I have heard many times. It's not something that's just uh, once or twice. It is something I've heard many times. There is more to the Bible than Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And primarily, the big, big weighty argument that is used is that you are cherry picking. And you're not looking at the at all the context. You're cherry picking. What is that? It's when one picks out a verse and builds a doctrine out of it. He or she is cherry picking because the warp and the woof is ignored. All right. The warp and the woof. The warp and the woof. Turn to your neighbor on one side and say it's a warp. And turn to the other one and woof. All right. The warp and the woof are the threads woven in a fabric that's composed of the warp, which is the threads running lengthwise, and the woof, which is running crosswise. And it creates the texture in the fabric. And, and so a suit may have a unique thread in it. You, you, you may not be able to see it from out there, but... This is a gray suit, but in this gray suit, there's a really cool light blue thread that runs through it. And so the warp and the woof is the fabric that is composed, that makes a a suit what it is, or a piece of fabric what it is. And so there may be a unique thread in it to give it aesthetic texture, but the thread alone does not make it a suit. Okay, you pull out this thread here, you don't have a suit, you've got a thread, and you better not come into the house of God with just a thread. It's 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 that it doesn't have the whole warp and the woof. There is not a complete garment that is there. And so then the argument is neither then does a verse alone produce the veritable structure of a complete teaching. Meaning that you can't just pick a verse out of somewhere and build a doctrine on it without considering that there is a context, there's a warp and the woof, there's a fabric that goes together. And so their argument is you're cherry picking. You're pulling one string out and you're building a doctrine over it and they stand that as an approval on their argument as if the discussion is over. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Ladies and gentlemen, things are not born in a vacuum. You can't just pluck a verse out and make something out of it. Just like you didn't come here in a vacuum. You came here. You've got an identity. You're connected with other people, in other places, at other times, and you are here because you are you, because of all of those connections. It's not vacuumless, you are not here in a a vacuumless environment, a space devoid of matter. This is a major interpretive skill at play. Which this charge suggests is lacking. In other words, your interpretation skills are off because you're basing something off of one scripture. And so your interpretive skills are off. And therefore that makes you invalid. 
And that makes your argument limited. Namely, you're taking the verse out of context or with no understanding of context. Now, I understand context. I understand that. It's called the big C. The big C is context. And there are different contexts in the scripture. There is a literary context. There's different genres. The Bible's inspired by the word of God. Therefore, it makes it a little little different type of literature, but it's, it's still literature in its different forms. It's just an inspired form. You have gospels, you have epistles, you have writings, you have the prophets, you have apocalyptic literature in Revelation. So there's a lot of different genres or a lot of different literary context. I understand that. I, I get that. I understand that if you go into the writings into Proverbs. Proverbs is not meant to be an exact uh, truth. It's a general truth. So there are some things that you may do in Proverbs, and if you're thinking that it's, it's going to be an exact truth, you may be disappointed. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Sometimes somebody may just haul off and hit you anyway. But generally... Generally, what the wise man is saying is that if you give a soft answer, it won't come back at you in anger or frustration and somebody might not hit you. If you train up a child in the way that he should go, that means there's more probability that he won't walk away from God or she won't walk away from God. But it doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means that there's a better chance if you follow what the wise man is saying. See, that's a literary context. And that's understanding what it means. Now you can't, you can't take that context and then go into Revelation and, 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 and try to apply that to, uh, Revelation or Revelation to the gospel. So I, 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 yes, I, I know. I know. I know there's a historical context. You have to understand how things are connected. Again, we're, we're, truth is not born out of a vacuum. There's, there's, There's factors that go into every book. There's there's a time frame. There are nations that are either rising or falling. There's an environment. There's economic situations, political situations, and that's called a historical context. The particular way God interacts with humanity within those uh, contexts. And then there's a theological context, meaning that not only do you have literary, not only do you have historical, but you've got a theological context, which takes into account all of the scripture and pieces it together. Some things are continuous, some things are discontinuous, some things are fulfilled, some things. And so this is why it really, really frustrates me when some talking head will try to uh, try to compare the Old Testament with with some uh, other religions writings and doctrines is because they're going back trying to take stuff out of the Old Testament and out of context, not recognizing that there is a New Testament and Jesus fulfills that. There's a greater expansion of truth here. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to cherry pick to try to find talking points that make your argument look good. That's frustrating because I understand there is a theological context. So Having stated a willingness to acknowledge the cherry-picking complaint, I also recognize a deeply embedded scripture 
and treasure in this verse. And I find in it a repository of truth that in no way precludes itself from the rest of the corpus of scripture, but in fact anchors it to the very mission of God himself between what once was, what is going to be, and what now is. So just to throw that over the bow of the boat, I want you to know that I understand context and I'm not ignorant of those things. My thinking is not elementary here, but the reason I am insistent upon this is because I recognize that there is great value in it that spreads throughout the entire scripture. And this seems to be a repository of power and strength and worth focusing on. So let me just, let me just, uh, let me just, uh, you know, that's probably not a good idea, bro. Uh, uh, just set it over there on the ground. <laughs> let me, let me just, let me just, let me just walk a little bit. God made a promise to Abraham and he said to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. I'm going to promise you that this is not only something that's going to be relegated to you, your family, or another select group, but there's going to come a time when it's going to be much bigger than that. It's going to reach the entire world. God made this promise to Abraham. Then he elected the vehicle of Israel. He chose them. He called them out of bondage. He gave to them a gift called the law. And he said to them, I'm going to use you to inform and instruct and be a schoolmaster so that other people can understand the relationship between you and God and me and humanity. And and I'm going to do that. And then there is going to come a time in which I am going to come down into the world to fulfill the promises that were made to Israel. I'm going to be everything that you are looking for. You value your temple. I want you to know that I'm going to be your temple. Jesus said to them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. They said how in the world this thing has been in building for 46 years. He wasn't talking about a physical structure. He was talking about himself. The time has come in which the Old Testament is wrapping up and it's culminating in one called Jesus. I'm going to be your temple. It's not a physical structure. It is found in a name that's above every name. It's not this building, but if the name is there, he'll be in the building. This is why God moves in some shackle, uh, some shack in Peru, and the power of God still moves in Iquitos, just like it does in this building, in this place. Why? Because it's not a physical structure. It's because a God has culminated and fulfilled everything that Israel was looking for. I'm going to be it. I'm going to be everything that you are looking for. I'm going to be your temple. I'm going to be your Sabbath. Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. He walks up to him and he says to him, will you be healed? The man starts giving him excuses. Jesus didn't want excuses. He wanted to know, do you want to be healed? Isn't that funny? 
Isn't that how we operate sometimes? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He says, I have no man to get me into the water. Somebody steps in. He's got all these excuses. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Praise God. We heard preaching today. You know what we need to do? Not not get so involved in all the excuses that we don't recognize that there is a solution. (laughs) I'll listen for a while to all the things that you've got and the reasons why you can't. But the ultimate fact of the matter is there is a king that's above all that is able to solve your problem and your solution if you'll accept it. Take up your bed and walk. The man takes up his bed and he walks and people get upset because the man was carrying a bed on the Sabbath, which qualifies and quantifies as work. And so Jesus tried to explain to them that I don't understand why you're marveling. He said in John chapter seven, he said, think about this. Moses gave you circumcision and you'll circumcise somebody on the Sabbath day. That the law of Moses might not be broken. And yet you're angry with me because I have made the man completely whole. If the Jews could perform circumcision on the Sabbath in order not to invalidate the law of Moses, then why should they be upset when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath? The paralytic man was completely whole and was given full life force, which is much greater than the limited operation of circumcision. And the Sabbath was being robbed of its true meaning if the Jews held circumcision the lesser against the one work of healing the paralytic, which is the greater work. And so they wanted to judge him. Jesus was trying to tell them, I'm your temple and I am your Sabbath. I am your rest. You don't need to look for a particular day. I am it. Hallelujah. So when you say in the name of Jesus, that is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. You don't have to look for a day on a calendar. Jesus was trying to impart to them, I'm everything that you were looking for. Everything that's wrapped up in the identity of who you think you are. I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. Everything. I'm your identity, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I'm your identity. This is precisely why Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, and sends the Holy Ghost to the church in order to fulfill his promise to Abraham. What he tries to do with them is get them on board to say and think. All right, I made a promise to Abraham. I use the vehicle of Israel to project that truth. I am here to fulfill all of those things. Now, I'm going to fulfill the promise that I made to Abraham, and I'm going to reach to the entire world, and we're going to step through that door if you'll be willing to do it. And they weren't willing to do it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't visualize it. They couldn't understand it. And yet he gave his life for it. So in this verse that we're talking about, I know there's more to the Bible than Acts 2.38, but in this verse, it becomes a question of whether or not all that investment is going to pay off. Is it going to pay off? Reaching all the way back to the beginning, Abraham and through the lineage of the Israelites, through Jesus Christ, is it going to work? Will they be able to reach the entire world. Will they get on board? They didn't get on board, but we've got an opportunity to get on board and there is value in what happened there and investment was given and it was worth it. So, this verse, though not the only one, then becomes a key hinge point of focus so as to ascertain if the risky investment of Jesus Christ was worth it. There is a spotlight on it and the angels desired to look into it 
As a matter of fact, the same guy that was preaching that verse was the same guy in First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 7 that said the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though you now see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation, everyone say salvation, the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify and then he gets to the end of that particular paragraph and he said which things the angels desired to look into this thing is precious this thing is valuable this thing is a treasure that the angels want to look into now you may not want to look into it but I want to look into it because the angels desire to look into it therefore it's connected to something that is heavenly beyond this earth this is why I still get excited about it this is why I still preach it because there's a value Oh, you're not hearing what I'm saying. Some of you are looking like, when's lunchtime? I'm talking about a message that is powerful. I'm talking about a message that still saves. Why such an insistent? Well, what else do you have? It goes through the entire scripture. It's the warp and the woof of everything and it coalesces here. Praise God. Praise God. You can be seated. Relax. Chill out. You're out of breath. Still got a little bit of time. Speak a little slower. There's a fabric here. <laughs> there's, a, there's a tapestry. Baby, I didn't just come walking in here with just one thread. I'm clothed in a tapestry that is beautiful to view and look upon. And it's got a warp and it's got a woof. And it's a fabric that is fantastic and is absolutely fine fashion for the soul that will save, that will deliver, that will redeem, that will heal. Anybody hearing what I'm saying? I'm talking about a celebration of what only God can do. Therefore, it becomes incumbent upon the church of God to continue to preach the rich tapestry that he has died for and has given to us in an effort and in order to reach out and impact the entire world. Hallelujah. Let's stand to our feet, clap our hands, lift our voice, and magnify the King of kings and Lord of lords that he's let us look into it. We can look into it. We can view it. We can preach it.
Praise God. Praise God. You can be seated. Thank you. God bless you. 1153. Doing all right. Doing all right. Doing all right. There's a warp and there's a woof. So let's talk about the warp. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about it. What did he say? He said, repent. He said, repent. Abraham, there's a form of repentance in Abraham's decision to get out of the era of Chaldees and follow not where he was knowing, where he was going for a heavenly city. You know what he was doing? He was saying, you know what? I repent of everything that is found in this place. I don't care how successful, wealthy I was. I don't care what social connections there are. I don't care what anybody says. Family may think I've lost my mind, but I haven't lost my mind because I'm following something that is greater. Hallelujah. So there was a repentance found in his calling out. There was a repentance in the calling out of Egypt. You're going to have to walk away from that old lifestyle. And you're going to have to get out of slavery and bondage. Hallelujah. There's a taskmaster ruling over you. And you got to detest every part of it. No matter what was associated and connected to it. God's calling you out. And so you got to come out. you got to repent and turn away and walk away from some things. We still have to preach a message of repentance. There is no way I'm going to stand in a pulpit and let you walk to an altar and and carry the same baggage that you came in with out of here and think that everything is okay. There's got to be a confrontation. There's got to be a collision. You got to lay some things down and walk away and say everything I've been doing, it hasn't been worth it. But this is worth it. And this mercy is worth it. Praise God. Praise God. Repentance is connected to restitution. Not only do you confess that you were wrong, but in the Old Testament, in in Numbers, you actually paid a restitution. You tacked on some things. Not only am I repenting of what I've done wrong, but I'm also going to take care of things that I have done in wrong to others. This is the warp. This is the warp. I'm I'm just responding to the claim that there is more in the Bible to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Now I'm going all the way back into the Old Testament. And I've made several trips back and forth. And I'm, I'm continuing to do that because I'm not just talking about a single thread. I'm talking about a woven tapestry that has some rich warp in it. It's got some lengthwise warp. There was a covenantal relationship in the Old Testament. Whether you would have blessing or whether you would have cursing, depending on how you were in relationship with Yahweh. And so if you were in right relationship, there was blessing. But if you were in wrong relation, there was cursing. And the only way to get you out of a vicious cycle of caught in in that degradation was to repent and get back where you needed to be. And there were covenant enforcement mediators called prophets that were trying to, all the time, trying to get the people of God to recognize this is the covenant. You've got to get back here. You're over here. We don't follow this. you got to get back here. And they used all types of symbolism and teaching and, and, and everything. And they repeated over and over and over the covenant that God had made with the children of Israel. Jonah preached to Nineveh. I just threw this in here just in case some of you think you've 
preached a real great revival and you've had a great move of repentance, nobody, nobody has ever preached a revival like Jonah. Because the scripture said that when Jonah preached, that the king stepped up and said, neither man nor beast heard nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. And they put on sackcloth and ashes. You know you're having a powerful revival when the dogs, the cats, the cows, the donkeys, and everything else is not eating and they've dressed in sackcloth and ash. I mean, that's a powerful revival right there. (laughs) Repentance. Repentance. Classic calls to repentance are found in Ezekiel 18, 33, as well as Isaiah 55. The shift toward an emphasis on individual repentance can be seen in Ezekiel chapter 18. John the Baptist steps onto the scene preaching repentance. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree and when he met Jesus, he said, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor and if I've taken anything from any man by false act I restore to him fourfold. That's repentance. Repentance. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. And the time of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. There still needs to be in a modern church the same message in the early church, which is you got to forsake an old life. You got to walk away from some stuff that has only brought you dysfunction and degradation anyway. Walk away from it and see things in a new light. Listen, we can't have people coming to church wanting to act like, wanting to live like, wanting to dress like the rest of the world and still feel like they are saved. There's got to be somebody with a good attitude and a right spirit that can preach into their world and say, you need to walk away from some stuff. You need to acknowledge something. Praise God, a man by the name of Paul in one of the books of, uh, in literature to a church called Corinth in one of what is called a chapter in verse 11 said, for behold this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness wrought it. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. Yea, what fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I'm talking about the warp that's in the fabric. Confession and repentance is a warp in the fabric of our text that a person must literally forsake their own will because their will does not work and there must be a recognition of a huge elephant in the room that must be confronted not soothed, not accommodated not ignored, not explained away, but given truth so that someone can make the right determination to turn away from where they are in 
Hallelujah. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord together. Praise God. Repentance is an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that my life is a mess. And everything I have done has only made it worse. People are not coming into church wanting to hear you tell them, well, it's going to be okay. You don't have to worry about it. Let me soothe you and tell you how to fit into the whole dynamic of everything. It's going to be okay. No, they come broken. They come beat down. What they need to hear is, you know what? You can lay all that stuff at an old altar of repentance in acknowledgement that everything that I have done doesn't work. It has failed miserably. I'm strung out. I'm doped up on all kinds of addictions and stuff. I need out from underneath this. Well, let me tell you how that can be done. There is one that gave his life for you and he died for you and his death represents a certain type of repentance. You gotta die out to that old way and that old pattern and that old lifestyle it's worth it praise God so repentance is an acknowledgement that's the warp there's a lot of warp there and you've got to bury some things yes not only do you have to acknowledge some things let's have a good old fashioned bury yeah People start coughing stuff out. I mean, some of it's so vile and it is so disheartening and heartbreaking. The only thing, the only good thing to be done with it is, is let's, let's, let's bury this. Let's, let's acknowledge it and, and then let's bury it. Hallelujah. Let's put it under. There is a definite need not only to put the death, the old nature, but to bury the old nature. And acknowledgement leads to abandonment. I'm leaving some serious stuff behind. I'm leaving some old things. I'm forgetting those things that are behind. And I'm reaching forth for those things that are before. Well, looky here, there's some more warp because in first Peter, again, it's Peter chapter three and verse 20, he said, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's warp language right there. You put on Christ. What did you put on? You didn't put on a string. No, you put on a garment of praise. God gave you something valuable that is fashionable for an eternity. When you went down in a watery grave, you washed away some things. You buried some things. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You gotta bury it. Come on, come on. 
My goodness, anybody recognize when you went down in the name that's above every name? Something serious happened when I went down in that watery grave. A huge load was lifted. A brooding presence was removed. A loud trumpeting of sin from Adam's generation was stripped off of me. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's the warp. That's the warp. That's the warp. It's not a string. It's a woven tapestry of value. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody. Thank him. Thank him for a baptism. Thank him for a burial. Thank him for a removal of the elephant that was in the room that nobody else wanted to talk about and nobody else wanted to deal with. But God dealt with it. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I know there's more in the Bible than Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, but man, every time I keep going into Acts 2 and 38, I find all these strings that run throughout the entire tapestry of the scripture. And it's just too hard not to step back into a pulpit after somebody has walked away from a lot of junk and say, it still works. Still works. Still works. Still works. Still works. You need to get back in your pulpit and you need to get invigorated about re-preaching, re-teaching and inspired by the tapestry that only God has given. I know, I know. I know there's more in the Bible than Acts chapter 2. Why I need to do this right. I know there's more in the Bible. Then Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. You know, that's also an attack too on individuals. You can sit down. Just, just let, me, let me catch my breath here and deviate just, just a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. 12.07. That's not only... That's not only an argument out of ignorance, because in some cases a person's saying that because they're hearing the same thing over, but they're not following it and they don't understand. And so you have to frame it to where maybe they can understand that this is where the, this is where the foundation is laid. But it is also an attack on some that use that to impugn the intellectual ability of the spirituality of the theological intellect of individuals who value this. In other words, there's so much more and you're focused on that and so we're leaving you in the dust and behind because there's vistas out here that can be understood and horizons that have not been seen and it's time to move on. I take umbrage with that. I'm... 
I don't have a whole lot of time here, but if you start going off on all the things I've already said, you've got a lot there to spend a lot of time and a lot of depth in. That's worth saying. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There is a depth here and a value here that I'm not just so soon removed from. I think I'd like to stay here and recognize this is the the propulsion that propels you to where you're wanting to go. But you're never going to get there short-circuiting this. You're never going to see great visions out there when you bypass this. You're never going to see God do wonderful things out here. Maybe the collapse of things. You need to come on back. Come on back. Come on back into where the scripture said there's a warp. There's a tapestry. Praise God. Well, now it's time for woof. You want woof, and I'm about worn out. I need some woof. If there's a warp, man, repentance, burial, baptism, there's a woof. And the woof... It's the empowerment. Prophet Joel said, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. Ezekiel said, a new heart will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. That's not a string. That's an attachment that goes back into the Old Testament. That is a great woof. And the woof is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The comforter has come. The spirit of truth has come. The advocate has come. The paraclete has come. And he has been delivered so that the greater things can be done. Go is made possible by the impartation of his spirit in us. This is why in Ephesians it is recorded... One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. What it means is God's Spirit is empowering me. God's Spirit is enabling me. You looking for a woof? It's not going to be found in a confession. It's going to be found in the impartation of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And when that impartation comes, it's going to give you the ability to go and to do. Let me tell you something that troubles me. I am troubled by an environment in which people come to the house of God and they get a feeling of the Holy Ghost. 
and it feels like they're going from one week to the next week. I got a touch of the Holy Ghost on Sunday night, but then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and oh Lord, Friday came along. Saturday was really bad, and I came back to the church on Sunday, and I got a little touch, but then I'm back to the same thing in the same place. I I think something is wrong there. Something has been short-circuited. God doesn't want you to come to church just to get a good feel. God wants you to get the Holy Ghost so you become empowered to do the work of God. What I'm looking for are saints of God that step in on Sunday and say, we're here to do a work of God. And then next Sunday say, we're here to do another work of God. Because God has made us more than a conqueror. He has empowered us. I don't know, does that trouble you? That troubles me. We live in this charismatic environment and society where coming to churches just to get a little feel good. God didn't give us the Holy Ghost just for us to feel good. God gave us the Holy Ghost to reach the entire world. He gave us the Holy Ghost to have a boldness. When persecution came, the early church said, we're going to an upper room. We're having a prayer meeting. And when they got in the prayer meeting and the Holy Ghost fell and shook the place where they were assembled, they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. It's not about just a feeling. It's about an empowerment. It's about the Holy Ghost in us reaching out and responding to a world that needs to hear a new birth message. to come out brother you need to get your head off of your chest and get your chin off of your chest and say you know what I'm going back to my city with a boldness I'm going back with a power and an anointing from God God put his Holy Ghost in me so that I could be used of him God put his spirit in me so that my city could experience revival is to infuse you with confidence about the power to execute the continuing mission of God to the world. Oh, somebody lift your hands and exalt him. feel the Holy Ghost. I feel the Holy Ghost. Don't let it fall. Let it fall. Let it empower. Let it encourage. Let it minister. That's it, brother. Come on, let the Holy Ghost reconfirm some things in your life. God hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's walking in you. I'll tell you what we need. 
It's not good in a natural sense, but in a spiritual sense, we need to gain back some spiritual swagger. That's too much. No, it's not too much. He said we are more than conquerors. Not a conqueror, more than a conqueror. There's a certain spiritual swagger there that says I am more than a conqueror. I don't care what hell throws my way. God is greater. God is greater. He's bigger. He's better. And so I'm not going to approach the giants in my city with my own power and my own ability. But I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. The name that's above every name. Listen to me, listen to me just for a minute. I'm talking about a spiritual swagger like Muhammad Ali had in 1974 before facing George Foreman. And they said to Muhammad Ali, what's going to happen? He said, I'm bad. I've been chopping trees. I've done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning and throwed thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone, and hospitalized the brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. I'm fast, fast, fast. Last night, I cut off the light in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in bed before the room was dark. All you chumps are going to bow when I whoop them, all of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. You need to go back to your city and you need to say to the devil. You know what? I'm not coming to you in my own abilities and my own talents. But I know one that's greater than I am. And we're in consolidation and we're in solidarity. We're on the same team. So it doesn't matter how big you look and how bad you look. There is a God that's on my side. And he's given me a commission to reach my world. He's given me the ability to have revival. I'm going to have it. I'm going to have it. I find every spirit that is not like God. Take control of it. I want us to move in as close as we can, close as we can, close as we can. Praise God, praise God. I still have another part of the message because we're still working on the woof. And the woof is the best part, and I'm finished. And it's really sad. It's really sad because the last part of the woof is the identity. I mean, the warp is great. Repentance and baptism, that's phenomenal. But the woof, when you're talking about the Holy Ghost and then when you're talking about the identity of who it is we're talking about. We're not baptizing just any name. We're not baptized in titles. We're baptized in a name that's above every name. There's an identity in that verse that runs deep. Ha!
neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved we're not talking about a lesser God we're talking about the God we're talking about the I am that I am that said to those that asked him who do you think you are he said before Abraham was I am Philip said would you show us the father he said have I been so long time with you he that has seen me hath seen the father you've got an identity behind you you've got a power be- come on somebody lift up your voice and magnify him don't get Jesus on get Jesus on get Jesus on in that name. There's redemption in that name. There's power in that name. There's authority in that name. There's healing in that name. There's deliverance in that name. There's victory in that name. There's hope in that name. There's joy in that name. There's peace in that name. There's holiness in that name. There's glory. You know what we're so good about saying to other people? You need to shout. You need to lift God up. You need to get your dance on and praise God. I've come to tell some preachers today, you need to do what you say. You need to put your words where your mouth is. Somebody needs to do a dance. Somebody needs to do a shout. We've got something that is powerful.
Hallelujah. You feel what I feel? I feel victory in the house. I feel revival in the house. message than you just heard. There's too much Holy Ghost in this place right now for us not to just everybody tear loose and give praise to God with our hands, our feet. They're going to sing. We need to shout. 